Hi everyone, welcome to the Earthquake Science Seminar um, for Wednesday, June 8, 2022. Uh, this seminar is brought to you from Offit Field, even though it's completely virtual, so it's kind of exciting. Um, so I'm going to hand it off to Sarah McBride to introduce today's speaker. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Sarah McBride. I'm a research social scientist with the Earthquake Science Center, and it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sabine Muse is the Mendenhall Fellow at the U.S. Geological Survey in collaboration with the Natural Hazard Center, whose director is Professor Lori Peake, working on developing socially equitable earthquake risk products. Broadly, her research surrounds the development of disaster information that centers users and the human experience. Sabine applies her statistical learning, risk analysis, and user-centered design techniques to develop tools that inform effective and equitable disaster risk reduction, response, and recovery. She has worked across Nepal, Singapore, Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, among other countries, to gain firsthand experience of the impacts from disasters. The transdisciplinary nature of her work has led her to collaborate with Kathmandu Living Labs, the World Bank, NASA JPL, Humanitarian OpenStreetMap team, among others. She also co-chairs the Natural Hazards uh, Center's research meeting, which I am also on that group. I got voluntold to be there, so thanks, Sabine, for leading that initiative. And she co-founded the Risk and Resilience uh, DAT Artathon. Sabine completed her PhD in 2021 between Stanford University and the Earth Observatory at Singapore at Nyong Technological University. Her master's is in sustainable design and construction from Stanford as well in 2018. She has a bachelor's degree in civil engineering from the Ohio State University in 2016 and will be joining not USGS. Sadly, I will never forgive you for leaving us so soon, Sabine, uh, but she'll be joining University of Michigan Department of Civil and uh, Civil and Environmental Engineering in 2023. Sabine is a truly impressive researcher. We are honored to have her her today, and she's also a fantastic human being. Sabine, thank you so much for being here, and I will hand it off to you. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah, for that really lovely introduction. I'm just going to share my screen here. Um, and hopefully everything goes swimmingly. Um, all right. So hello, everyone. Thank you for having me here today. Like Sarah said, my name is Sabine Los, and I'm really excited to be sharing with you my research on data and disasters, designing actionable and equitable earthquake information. Um, just so you know who you're listening to, to today, I'll give you a bit of background on how I got into this area of research of data and disaster information. Um, so by background, I'm an engineer, but really I've always been interested in how everything outside of engineering interacts with what engineers design. Um, I most, uh, mostly have worked in a lot of places around the world that are thinking about earthquake information because they're trying to figure out how to prepare for or recover from recent earthquakes. Right now, like Sarah said, I'm a Mendenhall Fellow with the USGS in collaboration with the Natural Hazards Center at CU Boulder. Um, so as many of you know, essentially our mission at USGS is, is to provide actionable intelligence, so information on the way humans and natural earth systems interact. So at the Geologic Hazard Science Center, where I'm based, we mostly focus on earthquake and landslide hazards. 
Um, so hopefully you can see from the mission of the USGS that our job is essentially to deliver information. And this is really awesome because we can deliver information that many people look to when an earthquake occurs and they need to know what's going on. And USGS is actually not the only agency that does that. A lot of engineers and natural scientists focus on delivering information to kind of support, um, support situational awareness when an earthquake happens. Um, and this is definitely in the case with standards and risk information, many other agencies. However, a lot of us focus on what is possible and novel and new with designing information, partly because of at least from the engineering perspective, we were trained not in how to design information, but how to design other systems like pipelines or bridges. And so therefore, sometimes we might not know how to critically ask ourselves some important questions about the information that we're producing, like, what is the process of designing this information? Who do we include? Who are we designing it for? What is needed? And importantly, what are the effects of the information we design years after it's being um, produced? And so this is all pretty vague and I'll, I'll kind of make it more concrete looking at an example after the 2015 Nepal earthquake. Information is important because it does have long-term effects after, after it's produced. Um, and so after the Nepal earthquake that occurred in 2015 and it affected about hundreds and thousands of people in Nepal. And this was of course a very deadly event. However, it was also really inspiring in a way because a lot of different groups on the ground um, from around the world, they're posting information after the earthquake. And many of these um, sources of information or data were using new technologies at the time, such as satellite-based estimates or crowdsourcing. Um, and then on the flip side, there were also many response and recovery decisions, such as um, figuring out where to send emergency shelters or developing reconstruction plans. Um, these decisions really required um, information that was collected and produced after the earthquake to support their planning processes. Gosh, one of my... So for today, let's zoom into one of these decision processes, which is the post-disaster needs assessment. You'll hear me mention this PDNA a lot today, so I'll just focus on it here um, to explain it more. So the PDNA is essentially, it's carried out after a lot of international disasters. This one was led by the government of Nepal, and essentially the goal of the PDNA is to assess what the recovery needs are of an affected country so they can request international aid. So things that they're assessing are what are the damages, the reconstruction costs, and importantly, the population needs. Um, Nepal's PDNA process was really quite successful. It brought together a bunch of organizations in Nepal and around the world, and it did lead to a pledge of about 4.4 billion US dollars in aid from international donors. So really important and really impactful and it shaped the rest of Nepal's recovery. Now, what was in the PDNA? Um, the main source of information that underlied that um, $4.4 billion was this map. So this is a map of the districts in Nepal categorized by the level of impact. And you can see here that most of the impacted districts are shown in the middle in darker orange. And what goes into this here, impact is largely defined by economic losses, which in the PDNA is mostly associated to housing damage, related to our rapid estimates of shaking. Um, so in this case, impact primarily considered 
physical impact to the built environment. That map from the PDNA on the left, which was produced in really short time period, two months after the earthquake, then went on to influence very um, long-term recovery approaches. So the map on the right shows four years after the event where most of the technical assistance, so reconstruction assistance, was concentrated in these areas of high impact. So you can see just how influential that um, piece of information on the left, which was produced very rapidly after an event, actually affected what the reconstruction and recovery looked like four years later. And so there are a couple of things to note about the map of impact in the PDNA. One is that much of the data that went into this map was not actually all of that new and novel satellite-based information or crowdsourcing. Um, and this was partly because that data was so new and it wasn't really designed for a specific purpose at that time, so it really didn't influence kind of long-term outcomes from important documents like the PDNA. Second, you'll notice that that map of impact primarily considers impacts to be damage to the natural and built environment. And this is this is OK because there's a, quite a bit of damage that happens from an earthquake. It, it did comprise a lot of the, the losses, but it does tend to focus our kind of follow on policies on re rebuilding more safely, rebuilding our structures rather than addressing kind of the long term chronic vulnerabilities of families who live in those homes. And really, this is no fault of Nepal's. Their PDNA process, like I said, was actually a massive success in that it brought together many different sectors in a short amount of time. It's really just kind of a global kind of uh, characteristic of the way that we measure and evaluate disasters and that we focus on known methods and easy to measure metrics. Um, and kind of an example that's more resonating here in the US is our prioritization of disaster funding through insurance based on disaster losses and damages. So with all of this in mind as in background, um, I ask how can we design earthquake impact information so that it is more actionable and equitable? And so what I mean by actionable is so that the information we produce is aligned with user needs on the ground and it doesn't go to waste. And by equitable, I mean so that the information explicitly prioritizes vulnerable and underserved groups in their design. And I'll demonstrate these two areas and these two concepts looking at user-centered damage information and transdisciplinary non-recovery information. And then take that forward, I'll close with demonstrating how we're applying these concepts to evaluate some of the near real-time earthquake information here at the USGS. All right, so how can we design earthquake impact information that's more actionable? And the way that we're going to go through this is by looking at user-centered damage information. Um, key here is user-centered. So what does that mean? What typically happens in product or information development is that scientists, engineers, um, we develop a product based on what we think is needed and what is scientifically possible. Then we put it out in the world and then maybe that information makes it to someone who might use it on the ground. This can happen with one of our most common types of earthquake impact information, um, information on building damage, where these new kinds of data from crowdsourcing or different models, 
they may or may not reach users on the ground who are putting together things like the PDNA or defining emergency shelter. A more user-centered approach to this would be first asking our ideal users what their needs are, then developing a product with these needs in mind, and hopefully iterating through this uh, feedback loop so we can iterate the design and get something that's usable from our for our users. So for building damage information, we kind of took this process and I was on a team that started with asking response and recovery stakeholders, why do they even need to know about building damage after an earthquake occurs? And that seems like a simple question, but it's actually not something that's fully mapped out. So a team of us actually interviewed several different participants who had experience with the disaster and also have worked with building damage information. And what we found was that there are six key tasks that rely on building damage information after an earthquake occurs. Importantly, um, these tasks can be organized by their spatial resolution, um, which is shown on the y-axis. So do we need information at a building level or for the entire nation? And also they can be organized by their time after the earthquake. So do you need that information within a day or three months after the earthquake? And so Again, one of these tasks was our trusty PDNA, which we decided to focus on in designing a way to estimate damage in the time frame necessary and at the spatial resolution necessary for the PDNA. Um, and the, the damage estimation we developed actually integrates all of these new kinds of data on building damage together, and it would be available within one to two weeks after an earthquake, so in time to support things like the post-disaster needs assessment. So what are these damage data sources? I kind of keep circling around that. Actually, we can break that down into their time of uh, data availability as well. So many early data sets on building damage um, cover a large region, so they're very useful for the PDNA, but they, they might be inaccurate or uninterpretable, so can't be directly applied for that use. Um, fortunately, later we collect field surveys of building damage, so engineers going out on the ground and surveying the damage building by building. And these are more accurate, but they do cover a smaller region than what is needed. Um, so what do I mean by inaccurate? A lot of our early estimates of damage are based on forecasts, which are essentially predictions of damage that combine our shaking intensity, exposure, and vulnerability of the buildings in that region. Um, but in places like Nepal, these forecasts actually predict the average damage at most of the affected locations, just because the underlying information on um, exposure and vulnerability might be very low resolution. On the other hand, we have higher resolution data that covers a large region. So one example is um, the damage proxy map by NASA JPL ARIA. And these estimates give higher resolution estimates of building damage. The only problem is the scale on the right, it kind of shows a gradient of damage which can be uninterpretable for on the ground uses. We don't know what a value of 255 actually means on the ground. So our idea is what if we can uh, calibrate all of this data from forecasts or remote sensing with a small sample of field surveys to estimate damage in time to support decisions like the PDNA. And so what we do is we apply a method called regression krigging and we use a hype 
hypothetical set of 100 field surveys shown on the left and real kind of data shown on the right that was produced after the 2015 Nepal earthquake. Um, and generally the way that this method works is that we can estimate um, the average damage throughout space using a regression function and then we can estimate uh, the stochastic and spatially correlated residuals around that trend or the average damage using a method called Krigging. And I'm happy to go into this a little bit more if anyone has questions. And finally, the final estimate of damage is just the sum of that trend from the regression and the residuals from the Krigging. And the predicted damage is similar to the true damage um, that was produced after the earthquake. The key difference is here, the map on the left from what we call GDIF um, is avail could be available within two weeks or as soon as field surveys could be collected, whereas the map on the right um, took about one and a half years to collect because that's field surveys for over 700,000 houses. Um, we also looked at whether uh, our damage estimate from GDIF is more accurate than any underlying input data set, and we found um, it was more accurate in Nepal. And um, we kind of designed this approach to be flexible to multiple different kind of data sets, inputs, and configurations, and we tested this by applying it to three other recent earthquakes, um, as shown here, uh, the Haiti 2010, New Zealand February 2011, and Central Italy 2016 earthquake. Um, I won't go into this too deeply now, but um, it can be found in a paper soon to be published in the Natural Hazards Review. Um, but essentially what we found is that through multiple simulations, GDIF um, is actually more accurate than any input damage data set um, as exhibited by the lower MSC of those um, orange bars. So, Taking a step back, why are there all these sources of damage data and many that are getting are that are not getting used? And hopefully by now you'll have noticed that I've shared this timeline of both the availability of different kinds of damage information, including forecasts or field surveys. Then I've also shown you this timeline of different tasks or uses of damage information that really depend on that data. And so a natural thing would be to merge the two. And so what you see on the top are the different damage data sources, again, forecasts, field surveys. And then on the bottom, you have the different damage data uses, um, including response allocation, all the way to kind of aid requests later on. Um, you can see that a lot of these data sets on the tap, top are theoretically available in time to support a lot of the uses of that data on the bottom. However, many of these data sources on the top aren't actually informing those uses on the bottom. And there are both practical and ethical issues of us collecting and producing damage information that does go unused. One practical issue is that a lot of time, energy, and money that goes into making this data is not fully utilized. But also ethically, the process of data collection or kind of even uh, nadir observation, it can be extractive if that data does not support local response and recovery planning. And so the way that we're trying to look at this is we're trying to evaluate have these data sources actually informed these local on the ground tasks. And what we're doing is um, performing a document analysis of multiple reconnaissance reports, literature, media, policy documents, 
and evaluating how much of these different data sets were used after the five uh, events that I show here. And so at a very high level, and we can dig into this at the end, we're able to map the information flows between different damage data sources, which you can see on the top. Again, those are the forecasts, those are the field surveys, um, plus some additional ones like structural in instrumentation. And we are looking at how that data was used for those each of those events. And we list all of those uses on the bottom. So this kind of just shows the flows from the data sources to those data uses that we outlined. And some preliminary results we have here is that we found kind of a few key things. One is that some uses on the bottom really were rarely informed by these kinds of damage data. And these uses are search and rescue and policy evaluation. The reason why search and rescue probably wasn't informed so much by these specific data, not saying they're not informed by other kinds of data, um, was they require very specific information in a very short time frame. And then things like policy evaluation, that's kind of a newer application that just kind of started in the last five years. On the flip side, when we look at data sources, there were some different forms of damage data sources that consistently informed multiple local uses, and these included forecasts, rapid safety surveys, and recovery surveys. And you'll see here that notably they informed on-the-ground planning like situational awareness activities, building reoccupation, recovery aid allocation, but they also informed later scientific understanding. And then finally, um, across multiple different kinds of data sources, there were a few uh, forms of damage data that um, often purely informed later scientific understanding or had um, no reported uses. And a lot of these were from newer technologies, so things like those satellite-based satellite estimates or um, structural instrumentation, so they haven't had that time to percolate, but also there were some kind of more established data sets that weren't used as well, so some reconnaissance surveys as well. And so from this graph, you can see just how important it is to consider end uses of the data that you're developing or the information that you're designing before you actually design that information so that it can be more actionable. All right, so that was actionable earthquake information, but let's think about equitable earthquake information. And like I mentioned before, earthquake impacts are much more than building damage and losses. And to show an example of more equitable information design, I'll walk through our model of non-recovery information. So again, taking a step back here, what is disaster recovery? And recovery in the broad sense is multidimensional and it can happen at many units of analysis, so at the household or the individual level and over various time frames. And we acknowledge all of this, but in this specific example, we're looking at physical reconstruction as only one component of housing recovery, though we will use this as our recovery outcome of interest to um, illustrate the development of our non-recovery model. And so we're looking at Nepal's recovery and Nepal's recovery policy actually focused on re reconstruction, which is why we're evaluating reconstruction outcomes. And specifically, they used um, kind of policy on building back better, 
which is a really good idea with great intention. It's to rebuild houses and structures more safely so that they might better withstand future disasters. And the way that the government of Nepal did this was by treating all households as equal, giving each household the same amount of money, depending on their level of building damage. And so just as a definition check that I'm sure we're all aware of, um, Nepal's reconstruction policy, it really treated all households as equal, which is um, a good first step. It's similar to giving everyone the same height ladder in this picture in the top right, uh, no matter their height and ability to reach an apple. A more equitable kind of recovery policy would have provided different amounts of aid or additional resources for those that might lag during the recovery, depending on their pre-existing capacity to cover, like the um, image on the bottom left, where they provide different size ladders. So now, um, going back to impact and recovery, we can think about impact recovery and conceptualize it using the recovery curve. And so the recovery curve relates some metric of well-being on the y-axis. Again, here I'm using housing condition and reconstruction as a starting point and time on the x-axis. And so when a disaster occurs, a house will be damaged and you'll get a drop in the housing condition. That's the immediate impact or the damage and what I showed with kind of the last in, um, examples of damage information. But it's also important to consider the ability to recover over time or reach a sense of normalcy over time. Importantly, not all recovery curves look the same. So maybe an average household might be damaged then over time be able to recover as shown on the left, but a more vulnerable household might stay in that impacted state and not be able to cover, recover. And this is part of what exacerbates some inequalities after an earthquake occurs. And so when I was working in Nepal um, and I was talking to many NGOs and agencies involved in the reconstruction, a lot of folks wanted to know after the earthquake, who were these groups that might not recover? Why weren't they recovering and where were they? And they wanted to know that very early on. And so when we think about vulnerability and social vulnerability, one might think of a data set like the Social Vulnerability Index, which is really prevalent here in the US uh, in the US. Um, and this is an example um, just kind of about how data can be available in one place, but not available in many other places around the world. And so vulnerability indices are essentially weighted averages of multiple factors um, that relate to social vulnerability using data like the census, which are uh, prevalent in the US and Europe, but maybe not so much in lower income countries in the global uh, south. And so there were some issues in directly applying a vulnerability index to Nepal. Again, we, uh, Nepal didn't have um, an updated census as much so as the US. And then again, practically when talking to a lot of organizations on the ground, they actually understood vulnerability in that post earthquake sense as the inability to recover. So as an alternative, we also looked at various spatial models that have been developed for socioeconomic indicators. So for example, in other areas of research in the Global South, um, researchers have used geospatial data to estimate different poverty indicators or mortality rates. And this kind of approach makes it more suitable for many other countries around the world that don't have kind of that accessible census information. 
And so what we aim to do was combine these two ideas of estimating the spatial distribution of non-recovery, kind of using factors of vulnerability, but also using um, very prevalent proxies for those factors. And what we wanted to know is which households would not complete reconstruction due to both physical factors, but also social, economic, and geographic reasons. And the data we use here is a questionnaire on monitoring impacts and recovery after the 2015 Nepal earthquake. And so this was a survey that was completed about five years after the um, earthquake in 2015. Um, and it was led by the Asia Foundation. And what they did is collected for over 3,000 households um, questions on recovery progress and reconstruction progress, which we model as a binary outcome, reconstructed or not. And essentially, we're aiming to predict the spatial distribution of non-recovery at all locations, sorry, that haven't been surveyed. And then the way that we go about predicting this is compiling a set of 31 potential predictors of non-recovery, again, drawing from theory on vulnerability and resilience, but also making sure that that data would be available in most countries after an earthquake happens. And similar to our damage estimation approach, we compile these predictors with our field survey data from the Asia Foundation. Um, we develop a non-recovery model, and then um, we use that model to predict the probability of not recovering throughout space. And specifically, the model here we use is called a random forest model, and we compare the random forest to predict um, probabilities of each class to a more traditional classification method called logistic regression. And what we do is evaluate the area under the curve, which is shown on the right. And essentially with the area under the curve, you want your curve to be closer to the top and to the right, and you want your area to be closer to one. And so you can see the random forest has a higher AUC in both the training and the test sets. And then our final map of non-recovery can actually be used as an additional estimate of need beyond building damage. So stakeholders planning recovery can consider in tandem which areas are most damaged, but also which areas are least likely to recover. And importantly, they can also see what predictors are most related to non-recovery in that event. And so here we found eight different predictors um, that were most predictive of uh, the lack of re recovery progress. And we categorize these into three groups, including hazard exposure, reconstruction complexity, and rural accessibility and poverty. And importantly, we can look at the influence of each of these predictors on non-recovery. Um, and these are the, the influence found in our model. And this is a lot to take in, so I'll explain this further, um, digging into two different variables. So what this plot shows is um, the relationship between um, non-recovery as found in a model and the variable of interest on the x-axis, in this case remoteness. Each of these lines is the relationship found for one household in our training data set if we were to vary the value of that variable across its entire range. And then the dark line is the average relationship found in the model over all households. So what this plot shows um, is that households that are more remote are less likely to recover. Um, and actually we found this, this variable and this relationship um, to be true, but it might only be true for Nepal, which you, as you can see here from the pictures on the right is a very mountainous and rural and remote region. And so, 
In the picture on the left, you can see one of our um, field researchers climbing up a mountain to reach one of the villages they surveyed. And as you can see from the picture on the right, some of the villages are indeed nestled in the Himalayas and hard to reach by car. And so this did really impact reconstruction and that was found to be harder to get materials to a lot of those areas or technical assistance. We also found um, a relationship with food poverty. So the higher the food poverty prevalence in an area, the less likely that area was to finish reconstruction. And again, we saw this in a lot of our interviews where in certain districts um, that were damaged, they also just faced pre-existing issues with these kind of long-term risks to overall well-being like food poverty. So here is a man in a village that we visited and he was going through his recent catch fruit day, which you can see it was quite empty. And so I think what models like non-recovery can do, um, they can incorporate these variables that we know are important to address after an earthquake, but um, we can start to see those variables earlier on. And so we can start to see how chronic issues of poverty and vulnerability do in fact relate to reconstruction and therefore have data and evidence that supports acting on those issues as part of a recovery plan. All right, so so far, we've covered actionable earthquake information with building damage and equitable earthquake information with the idea of non-recovery. And now let's talk about combining those ideas, looking at near real-time earthquake information at the USGS. So what I'm currently working on now with a lovely group of people um, at the GHSC and at CU Boulder. So, just as a recap, what we've considered so far is um, user-centered design to make information more actionable, and then also explicitly designing information to prioritize vulnerable populations to make it more equitable. And so we're applying these two concepts of user-centered design and equity into um, evaluating USGS earthquake information. So. For those of you who are not familiar, um, the USGS has produced near real-time earthquake information for over 25 years. And so this is a lovely timeline put together by um, Lisa Wald, and it shows how we produce information um, after an earthquake within the first 20 minutes um, from the source all the way to the impacts. And what we want to do is kind of try to make these products uh, more actionable and equitable once we evaluate kind of who is accessing these products and who is able to use these products. And then also who do we and can we include in the design of our products going future going into the future. And then we also kind of want to evaluate what information would be useful to develop in the future specifically to support decisions that address the inequities amplified by earthquakes. And so the way that we're going about that is through user-centered design methods, user research through focus groups and web analytics, and then also developing products and iterating through that user-centered design process um, using risk anal analysis and statistical methods. And all across um, these two kind of components of methods, we're, we're doing this with the overarching goal of working towards achieving disaster justice. So um, there's a lot of kind of new theory on this, but uh, three components of disaster justice include addressing uh, unequal distribution of pre-disaster risk or vulnerability, 
working towards distributive justice, so addressing the unequal distribution of post-disaster resources. And then finally, procedural justice, which is really thinking about how we are conducting the design of our information, how are we communicating in that information um, with our key users. And so going back to our user research, um, one component of that is looking at the analytics to understand who is using all of our near real-time products. And so one of our lovely interns, Eli Nodal, is looking through um, the page views and the users for a bunch of different earthquake event pages um, for our near real-time products. And just as a sneak peek, um, where you're able to see where those users are located, what kind of devices they're using, and how long they're staying on the page after the earthquake happens. Important thing to notice is, and look for here, and what we're um, kind of in the middle of looking at is um, whether our products are reaching the countries or the cities that are most impacted. And then we're taking a deeper dive into a few of our products. And so one of the main products that we're taking a deeper dive is the pager shown here. And this is because this is one of the products that cl gets closest to earthquake impact. And the way that we're taking a deeper dive into this is we're conducting several focus groups with key users who importantly um, already are familiar with our products, but also have work that explicitly prioritizes underserved communities. And so the sectors cover everything from nonprofits, international aid organizations, to even academia, who are a large part of our user base. And we're um, interviewing a lot of folks domestically and internationally. And two of our interns, Marisa Macias and Maddie Carr, are, are helping with these focus groups. And so kind of the first half of these focus groups will really focus on pager and how pager is being used in general, but also how is pager being used to prioritize underserved communities. And then the second half will ask participants to start generating ideas for new content that would be useful in their own work. And so this is just kind of different ideas for new content, but it's really a way to kind of get folks to brainstorm and help us design future um, earthquake information content we can provide in the future. And then finally, once we conduct this user research with the focus groups and the analytics, we can start to develop strategies for how we share our products and what information we include in our project products. Um, so yeah, we're still kind of about to start the focus groups, but I, I'm hopeful that we'll have kind of a, a nice strategy to move forward with our near real-time products. So um, as a summary, we went through kind of different examples of actionable and equitable earthquake information. And uh, the things that we can look at are how can we design future earthquake informations so it's focused on end uses and also meant to prioritize underserved communities. And really, I think this does come down to combining user-centered design principles, so this cycle of understanding user needs and then also developing data to um, inform those users, but then also working towards the components of disaster justice that I mentioned before, including vulnerability, um, distributive justice, and procedural justice. So with our damage information, um, I spent a lot of time understanding the uses of various building damage information before designing specific solutions. So we looked at the post-disaster needs assessment, and then we designed a method to estimate building damage that could inform the post-disaster needs assessment. 
And then with our non-recovery information, we focused on achieving distributive justice. So instead of only focusing on distributing um, aid based on building damage or assessing needs based on only building damage, we also kind of developed a way to look at rapid information on the inequalities in recovery. And this is kind of a first pass at what could be provided before um, future on the ground work uh, continues. And then currently um, with the near real-time products at the USGS, we're combining these components of user-centered design and elements of disaster justice to evaluate how our current products are being used, but then also develop strategies for how to better communicate and design of future products. Um, and so I think a large part of this work actually requires um, this procedural justice, which um, is is being talked about a lot here at USGS in terms of uh, stakeholder engagement and community engagement. We're approaching it slightly differently because all of our products are global um, and so we have to kind of be very specific on uh, identifying specific focus group participants that are innovators in equity and earthquake impacts um, from around the world. And the thing that we can think about is how we engage with them and then how we communicate with them. And so, for example, with um, the projects that I mentioned with Nepal, we are very intentional, intentional about sh how we shared our research. So we prioritize communication in making our data and our code so those on the ground could actually use it, so it's openly available. And we also varied um, our communication among multiple formats, including course, academic pop, uh, publications, but also blogs, reports, and um, visualizations. And I think a lot more can be done here in thinking of different formats um, to share with different audiences and evaluating what works best. And, um, and then we also um, really focused on thinking about who is at the table. So we aim to design information with a group that considered multiple disciplines and multiple identities. And we had a quite transdisciplinary team designing these solutions from engineers to anthropologists to economists to earth scientists. And we also had a really diverse team with multiple ages and multiple places uh, from multiple places around the world. And I think um, this creates a lot of kind of new ideas. And while we didn't agree fully on many things, what we had all come back to was that we agreed on the same basic mission and values and it, it ended up um, kind of resulting in this research. And so with that being said, I'd like to close and acknowledge the small community it took to conduct this research and is continuing um, to take to conduct this research and many of our funders shown on the right and then most importantly, I also want to close by bringing back up this picture, remembering that each one of these lines is a household. And when we were working with this data, um, it was really easy to forget that each data point was a lived experience by a family or per person that was affected by the Nepal earthquake. And one of our field researchers um, really kindly reminded us to take a moment to thank the many survivors who responded to this questionnaire, these questionnaires in our surveys. and um, this is not nearly enough, this thank you, but hopefully this research helps promote better approaches to disasters in the future. And so with that, um, I think I have plenty of time to take any questions and can dig into any of the parts that I 
um, skimmed really quickly past. Thanks so much, Sabine. Um, we can try for a physical round of applause at Moffitt. I don't know if you can hear us, but who knows. Um, <laughs> so um, let's kick off some questions. Um, if, if you'd like to ask a question, you can either put it in the chat or um, just raise your hand. And when we call on you, you can, you can unmute. And I see that Mehmet put uh, a question in the chat during the talk. Do you want to um, ask it yourself? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, yeah, uh, I think you mentioned uh, about uh, structural instrumentation as a factor. And of course, uh, outside of uh, US, Japan and Italy, and uh, how would you uh, rate the available information from structural instrumentation, for example, in Nepal and uh, Singapore, probably is close to zero almost. Yeah, is that, is that correct? And uh, so what do you do in that kind of, in that situation? Yeah, um, thank you, Mehmet. I uh, that's a great question. And I was hoping to put more about structural instrumentation because I I knew you'd be here. Um, but um, I guess there's two things. One is that structural instrumentation, I think, could be a really great resource. Um, let me see if I could open. Yeah, um, structural instrumentation could be a really great resource and that structural instrumentation could be available in the first hours to week after an earthquake happens. And it's like much more accurate in some cases if we can translate um, those um, measured accelerations to levels of building damage or damage states um, pretty quickly. It can be more accurate than um, a field survey. Um, the thing is, like you said, um, it wasn't prevalent after the Nepal earthquake, which is where we developed our, um, our, our, our um, approach to estimating building damage. And also um, a lot of the other places that we looked at um, estimating building damage, like you said, it wasn't um, fully prevalent. Um, such as New Zealand during the 2011 earthquake. Um, that being said, we have evaluated the uses of structural instrumentation um, in this project where we're looking at the flows between different damage data sources and those uses. And you could see here there were kind of two, two earthquakes that had um, widely available instrumented structures in a like you said, Italy, I think that was like a really amazing example. And the first example that I saw where um, many public buildings were instrumented and I'm, I'm blanking on the second earthquake that um, had much structural instrumentation. The only issue is we couldn't figure out um, the, the uses were unreported or um, went straight to scientific understanding. And so, yeah, I do think it's like really promising and can be used to um, inform some of these rapid damage estimation approaches when it's hard to get people in the field, you know, the day after an event. The, the only kind of roadblock is um, who kind of uh, instruments the structures. A lot of it's private companies and it might be only like one uh, private portfolio of buildings rather than publicly available 
um, set of buildings. But obviously, you're the, the expert in this as well, so I'd love to kind of learn more and chat with you about this. Well, sure, uh, anytime. And uh, of course, then maybe uh, it's probably better to say if it is available, I suppose. Yes, yeah. Okay. So yeah, great. Yeah, I think it thanks. could replace the field surveys and the damage estimation approach or it could be supplemental to the field surveys. Right, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, we've got a question in the chat from Major Zhang. Do you want to do you want to ask your question yourself? Sure. Um, I would just I'd like you tell me more how do you imagine people to use this kind of you know non-recovery prediction data or your more granular early prediction data on the ground if something happened again? Hi, thanks, Major. Um, really nice to see you and hear you. Um, I'm glad you could join. Um, yeah, I guess kind of the main distinction we'd like to make with the non-recovery information is that it's really kind of an early estimate so that folks, like all of these early estimates, even with the building damage information and the non-recovery information, is just a way to understand what might be most important to look into as you're conducting more granular field assessments. So for example, with the building damage information, I wouldn't want, um, actual very granular um, decisions on recovery aid distribution per household to be built only on our damage estimates. Like there are very much like field surveys of damage to support those things that will never be replaced by um, rapid models. And the same with non-recovery information. I think um, this is useful to kind of get the conversation going on which populations are most vulnerable and will be um, and are needed to focus on in the PDNA in our aid requests um, in a quantitative manner. They do, for example, in Nepal, they did kind of identify different vulnerable populations, but it wasn't as um, highlighted because it wasn't quantitative. It was that map of impact, which was based on building damage. And so if we can highlight that kind of information very early on, it can start to support kind of more conversations of um, how do we structure our recovery policy to incorporate those factors like addressing um, food poverty, for example. Um, so yeah, I'm not imagining it to be uh, very much like a granular um, distribution mechanism, like to support parametric insurance is not at that point yet, but it can be helpful to kind of start that conversation early and also identify those areas that are most impacted and um, least likely to recover. So you can go there and evaluate it um, more thoroughly. Thank you, that was very well explained. Thanks, Major. All right, we've got um, so you got you got an, an applauding emoji from Sarah Minton and a comment that was great, Sabine. Um, and Sue Sue Huff has a question in the chat, do you, or maybe it's a comment, but do you want to read it? Yeah, thank thank you for the seminar, Sabine. Um, so yeah, it really was more a comment, and um, it's kind of a complicated issue. But there are private companies out there that are peddling early warning systems that every expert who looks at them thinks it's being grossly oversold. They're sometimes getting funding from 
donor agencies that don't really understand the limitations. So it's not something that the, the mainstream community or, or my colleagues in, in Nepal is keen to endorse. That said, if there are, these are very simple instruments mounted to the wall, conceivably, if those instruments are out there, it, it could provide some data on structural, oops, that's my dog, some data on structural response. Yeah, I've definitely uh, thought about that a little bit with kind of the more low cost um, instrumentation and how that could be um, more prevalent in a lot of places, including in Nepal. I didn't actually know that there were wall mounted instruments there, so I need to Google that. Um, but yeah, I could see again with some of those newer technologies, there's kind of issues with accuracy or kind of overstating the benefits, especially if um, a company's profits rely on how accurate and, um, yeah, uh, predictive. You're touting it specifically for early warning, which is just all kinds of problematic, and that's where the, the difficulty lies. And if they were touting it as a way to monitor structures, it would be a different conversation, I think. Yeah, anyway, that's so. interesting. Um, Thanks. I definitely think that uh, that's kind of the nice thing about uh, the USGS is that because it's uh, got um, a, a mission to uh, support the public and no kind of um, private interest there, um, we can make all of our science hopefully available with the limitations. And I think folks do that really well here, whereas, um, you know, some some companies, I don't know about this specific one, but other companies of using machine learning to predict damage or something like that, not not as open. Um, so it's 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 a balance. <laughs> Thank you, um, Max. Max, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, thanks, Sabine, for a really informative talk. Um, so my question is about the uncertainty that a lot of earthquake information comes with, especially um, forecast estimates, uh, rapid assessments. So I, I'm wondering if in your previous projects you've discussed that concept and that topic with users of earthquake information and also how you've conveyed uncertainty in the new products that you've created. Yeah, thanks, Max. Um, that's a really good question, and I think it's something that everyone on our team thought about a lot, especially with many folks coming from kind of a risk analysis background and wanting to propagate uncertainty. Uncertainty, I will say that's probably one of the major limitations um, so far with the models that we've developed is that um, some of these don't explicitly account for um, like the uncertainty in each data set, though I think future research could. So for example, field surveys themselves, they can't, they they have their own measure of kind of like measurement error uncertainty, which you can incorporate into the damage estimation method, um, but we haven't yet. Um, and then we do produce um, an uncertainty estimate from that damage estimation um, approach, but I don't, yeah, I think we kind of overly focus on not overly, but we do focus on the prediction um, more so than the uncertainty estimate. And I do think that's probably 
kind of something that I want to explore going forward is figuring out how to incorporate those uncertainties. It's just really hard to like even know how to identify what the uncertainty would be in each of these data sets. Um, I have some ideas, but there's just so many data sets that go into some of these that it, it, it seemed intractable at the time. <laughs> that answer your question? Definitely, and and I think there are tools for propagating uncertainty, and I'd be happy to talk with you more about that. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to work together. We've got a question from Anne Wine. You want to ask that? I can read it. Um, in Nepal in 2019, I saw that farmers in rural areas were living in huts provided by other countries, such as Denmark, after the earthquake. I heard that they would never be able to recover their homes. Are the huts their definition of recovery? Could they have had a better recovery? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question, Anne, and I don't know if I can fully answer it, but um, this was partly partly something that our team like went back and forth on is like what does recovery even mean and then how do you quantify it and that's why I included that spiel about we only look at reconstruction progress of a pre-existing home now because that's how the policy was set up in Nepal though there were many um, there are many populations in Nepal that don't consider reconstruction of their home um, as super vital because they're more nomadic I don't know about this population you're talking about um with the huts provided by other countries um so we did try to um make also this non-recovery approach um as a kind of more flexible input output type of thing where you have a measurement of some recovery outcome of interest it could be regaining of your pre-existing income um as as opposed to like reconstructing your house but um that's future research as well and i think uh, another part of this project that I haven't presented on is kind of digging into like our full assessment of recovery. It didn't only focus on um, reconstruction, it focused on all of these other metrics and kind of teasing apart um, yeah, why, why some households might not have recovered as well and whether they define recovery as reconstruction versus um, other outcomes, but I didn't have time to present that here. And does that answer your question? Well, hopefully. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, if anyone else has anything they'd like to ask, you can raise your hand or put it in the chat. Um, Sue put a couple, couple more comments in, in the chat if you want to check them out. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was definitely a kind of a relocation effort, but it was hard to implement in Nepal as well. <laughs> All right, well, um, we're almost at the end of the hour, so thank you so much, Sabine, for coming coming out to Moffitt and, and giving your talk in an office. Um, and thanks so much to everyone who participated and made it such a great discussion. Um, it's a little regretful that we, we can't have an in-person seminar at the moment, but um, we're, we still have an awesome schedule of talks. So um, please tune in next week. And thanks so much, everyone, for coming.